are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. My name is Melanie, and this is The Living Writer Show. Today, we talk to Sylvia Engdahl, author of Enchantress from the Stars, um, The Far Side of Evil, and Children of the Star Trilogy, um, which is out in um, an omnibus edition. Also, the book Journey Between the Worlds, which was just re-released. Um, just a second, and we'll get into the interview. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned. For those of you who have just tuned in, this is Living Writers. My name is Melanie Schwederon, and today we're talking to Sylvia Engdahl, author of Enchantress from the Stars and a number of other novels for young adults. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm fine, thanks. Um, first of all, why did you decide to write at all, and why did you write for young adults specifically? Well, I write mainly because I enjoy writing and because I want to present my ideas. But unfortunately, it's rare for me to be able to create any story action. So I haven't written as many novels as I'd like to. Normally, I don't think in terms of action and events. Most of my ideas are more abstract. The stories I did have in mind were best suited to young adult novels. More than that, I chose to write for young adults because I want my work to appeal to a general audience and not just people with background in science fiction. The way the publishing field is organized, it's impossible to get adult science fiction published unless it's slanted toward readers who have read a lot of science fiction previously. And I wanted uh, my books to reach uh, a much wider audience than that. Um, Then what drew you to the science fiction genre? Well, I, I should say I've never liked a system that categorizes everything about the future or other worlds as a separate genre. I'd rather not think of it as separate, meant for a different audience than all the other fiction. I write about space because I believe expansion into space is vitally important to the future, and so it matters what people, and especially young people, think about space. You've had a number of other jobs and careers over the years, including being a teacher and working at camps and uh, working as a computer programmer. How has that influenced your writing, if it's influenced it at all? Well, it really didn't have any influence on it. Uh, During the years when I was doing those other things, I didn't have any time or energy to write. But the basic ideas for all the novels that I did write uh, were ideas that I got before I even started computer programming, although I didn't develop them into novels until afterwards. And uh, I don't think any of them uh, reflect uh, anything uh, from the other things that I did. Um, talking about your programming experience, what was it like to be an assembly language program, excuse me, programmer, and to work with that technology so early on in the history of computing? And did you have any idea at that time how important computers would become? Well, I certainly didn't. I, I had no idea that people would <laughs> ever have computers at home or use them personally. Uh, When I got my job as a programmer, there weren't any programming classes in college. This was back in 1957. They hired people who had done other work and trained us on the job. And nowadays, people think of assembly languages more difficult than using programming languages. But we didn't have any programming languages in those days. So assembly language just seemed natural. We did most of our debugging by looking at printouts of the binary code. (laughs) Of course, the computers were a lot simpler than today's computers. Uh, I worked on the Sage Air Defense System, and it had the most sophisticated computers of its era. 
but they were a lot less powerful and complex than just what we have on our own desk today, even though they occupied whole rooms at that time. And we just couldn't have imagined a computer <laughs> small enough to fit on a desk. <laughs> um, going back to your works, what sparked your interest in space? Well, it's really always been a mystery to me. I, I don't know. Uh, it happened very suddenly one day when I was 12 years old, and I was studying astronomy and science class at school, uh, and the teacher happened to to read something uh, designed to, to present astronomy that uh, was about what it might be like to travel in space. Uh, it wasn't a story, and I hadn't even read any science fiction then. Uh, nobody took the idea of space travel seriously at that time, because nobody I knew did, and certainly the general public didn't. But immediately I became convinced that it wouldn't be too long before people would actually travel to the moon and to Mars. And I, I just can't imagine where I got that, because uh, there wasn't any science fiction for young people, except in comic books. And I didn't read comic books. I only read things from the library. Um, you said before that you had some ideas you wanted to express through your fiction about space. What are those ideas or theories that you wanted to express through your fiction? Well, the most basic idea is that we live in a universe much larger than this one small planet. And there's a hopeful future ahead for us if we expand our civilization beyond this planet. But too many people today are pessimistic about the future of Earth. And I believe that's the direct result of not thinking in terms of the larger environment that's available to us. Uh, more specifically, in several of my novels, I present reasons why space colonization is essential to human survival. And that's something that I've believed for 50 years. Uh, for 50 years, I've been convinced that expanding into space is the only way we can prevent the eventual destruction of Earth. In fact, it's now been exactly 50 years, because I started worrying about that in 1956. <laughs> <laughs> there was no space program at all then. And so the next year, uh, Sputnik was launched in 1957, which was the very next year. And I was tremendously elated by that, because I thought it meant we'd be out of danger very soon. <laughs> and I didn't expect the long delay we've had in making full use of space technology. And when I wrote my books in the 70s, uh, I still didn't expect it. Uh, since then, I've been worrying again because it's it's now obvious that space colonies aren't going to be started in my <laughs> lifetime. But I haven't given up hope that today's young people will live to see them. Wow, you're very forward-thinking. You're a programmer worrying about space colonization before Sputnik. Well, uh, uh, I, I guess so. I really don't know where <laughs> those ideas came from. Um, of course, uh, in the 50s, uh, everybody was very much worried about uh, uh, nuclear destruction. That is something that uh, today's young people think is maybe more recent. But everybody talked about that in the 50s. Uh, so that uh, the, in the far side of evil, in my novel, uh, that people think uh, was maybe based on the situation in the 70s when I wrote it, was really based on... Uh, a world like our world was in the 50s, not the 70s. Of course, <clears throat> uh, Sorry. space isn't the only idea uh, in my novels. There's, there's several levels in the novels, and uh, there are a lot of other main themes in them. Uh, in, in Enchantress in the Stars and in my trilogy, Children of the Star, one of the main ideas is that there's different ways of looking at truth. And uh, people who see truth about life in terms of metaphors uh, can uh, really be thinking about the same ideas just as validly as, as people that see truth uh, uh, in ways that can be taken as literal fact. And, of course, this is, this is pretty obvious, I think, in Enchantress <laughs> in the Stars, but uh, uh, it, it's said in another way in a trilogy. Why did you decide to express these ideas in novel form rather than just stating them? Well, uh, People don't want to read philosophy. <laughs> they want to read stories. 
And in any case, it's impossible to publish serious nonfiction unless you're a college professor or some kind of a recognized authority. It's really much easier for me to express my ideas in nonfiction. I could write nonfiction books very easily, but there'd be no way to get them published, and so there's no way to reach an audience except for short things I put on my website. Does it ever frustrate you when people or fans take out different meanings than you had intended from your work? Well, uh, yes, yeah, so this has really been a problem, especially in the case of Enchanted from the Stars. Most people assume it's an allegory about relationships between cultures on our own planet, and it's not. Uh, of course, there's the basic idea that it's wrong to take land away from people to whom it belongs, and that could apply to our own planet. But uh, for most of it, to interpret it as being about cultures on our planet implies that some cultures of our own species are more advanced than others. And that's a very patronizing idea that has been rejected by modern anthropology. And I've seen comments on the web saying that Enchantress in the Stars promotes false anthropological theories. And that drives me crazy because... I did a lot of graduate work in anthropology, and of course I know better, uh, but that's a false analogy. Uh, the different cultures in the novel are different species that have existed for different lengths of time. They're at different levels of advancement in the biological sense, not just a cultural sense. And we on Earth are all members of the same species. And also... I didn't mean the book to suggest that rich nations should not help poor nations on our planet. Again, we're all members of one human race. The story is uh, meant to be literally about relations with aliens that have evolved on different planets separately. Yeah, I guess that's one of the caveats of writing this stuff in fiction form is that it might be easier to get the message out, but it's harder to get the message out in the form that you intended, perhaps. Well, uh, it would, but there again, it wouldn't have an audience. <laughs> uh, I hope that people uh, who do read the story will read what I've said about it on my website, because I've talked about this there. And uh, if they would go back and look at the website, uh, you know, that that would be fine. But Enchanted from the Stars was a Newbery Honor book, and it's it's read in school sometimes, by children that are really too young to understand it. It was meant um, for teenagers. And uh, when the teachers present it to the sixth grade, only the most advanced readers get much out of it. Uh, and a lot of those discussions uh, tend to, to try to apply it to Earth. And those teachers haven't looked at the website. Mm -hmm. And there's just no way around that because, of course, the book is much more widely known than my website is, and, uh, so there's nothing I can do about it. Yeah, yeah I read the book, um, for those of you listening. I have been a fan of, of Seville Engdahl for quite some time. I read the book when I was in elementary school, and sort of just, it was a story, it was great. And I went back to it this summer um, after completing studies in evolutionary biology, and it was just so much richer, and, and or rich in different ways, I guess. it is. It is interesting how much how the readership is perhaps too young for it, even though it can appeal to so many different ages. Well, uh, that particular book does appeal to some of the younger readers just for the story, even if they don't understand everything that's in it. Uh, but some of uh, my other books, and particularly the trilogy Children of the Star, is way over the heads of uh, middle school children. <laughs> And so they don't like it. Of course, there's advanced readers who do. I mean, there's advanced readers in middle school that are reading adult fiction. And I don't mean them. But uh, the average child uh, doesn't uh, like a book that is too difficult reading. <laughs> and uh, I have had adults tell me that they read those books and didn't like them uh, when they were in their early teens. And when they read the new edition, they thought I must have revised it a lot. <laughs> actually, uh, in that book, I had revised it very little.
You are listening to Living Writers here on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. My name is Melanie Schroederon, and I am your host for today. Um, we are talking to Sylvia Engdahl, author of Enchantress from the Stars, The Far Side of Evil, the trilogy Children of the Star, which is now out in an omnibus edition. Um, it's the books The Star Shall Abide, um, This Star Shall Abide, excuse me, Beyond the Tomorrow Mountains and The Doors of the Universe, and also the book Journey Between the Worlds, which was just re-released by Putnam in 2006. Um, these were first Athenian books in the 70s. Um, Enchanters from the Stars is a Newbery Honor book and is fantastic, of course, as are all of her works. You can learn more about Sylvia at Um Sylvia Engdahl is spelled S-Y-L-V-I-A-E-N-G-D-A-H-L. And you can find out more about Living Writers at our website, wcbn.org slash livingwriters. Um, the interview and all of our other interviews are posted up there or will be posted within the next few days. Um, so coming up in just a second is the rest of this interview, um, or at least the second part of it. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for listening. have your ideas about space colonization changed, if at all, since you wrote those works that we've been talking about? Uh, they really haven't changed. They haven't changed since back in the 1950s, uh, except for the fact that I no longer expect space colonies to be real as soon as I once did. Uh, I thought certainly by the 21st century we'd have a start on them. And, uh, most people who were interested in space thought that, and it hasn't to happen that way. So much of the money for research just goes into studying anthrax rather than studying ways to expand um, or study other areas of life. Well, the the money just hasn't been there for space. and Of course, that's a result of the fact that the the public doesn't understand why we need space. (laughs) President Bush occasionally mentions new initiatives for going to Mars or studying different parts of our solar system. What are your opinions on the progress of our space program in general and on his initiatives? Well, I think we have to say lack of progress. (laughs) There has not been very much uh, in the past 35 years, (laughs) except for the robot landings on Mars. Those were a great thing. But we could have done so much more if there had been more money uh, put into it. Uh, President Bush's proposal is a good thing uh, as far as it goes. Unfortunately, it doesn't look as if it has too much chance of getting implemented, even in that form. And it it doesn't uh, go anywhere near as far as it could or should. Uh, And the president hasn't presented the real reasons why we need to go into space. Uh, He presents it uh, mainly as uh, advanced for science, and that's a very common attitude. And I can understand the people who say that we can't spend a lot of money just to advance science, although I believe advancing science is very important. Uh, It's not worth the all-out effort that would have to be made really to get somewhere in space. And the reason that we need to do that is not because of science, uh, but because we need space uh, and the resources from space to solve problems on Earth. And every year that passes without making progress uh, increases the chance that we're not going to have enough lead time to do that before the depletion of Earth's resources makes it impossible to do it at all. 
or some disaster on Earth uh, makes it necessary for us to have uh, some base somewhere else. Do you feel that public interest in space or space exploration has waned over time, that it was stronger at any point in time that you remember? Well, yes. Of course, it's waned a great deal among the general public. There have always been a minority of space advocates whose enthusiasm hasn't waned. But the public, uh, back at the time of Apollo, uh, a lot of the public was interested only in the competition with the Soviet Union. And when we won the space race, they stopped caring. And that was because they never understood why space is vital to Earth's future. Uh, And, of course, space advocates talk a lot about this problem, and I haven't any answer to it. Uh, I once thought books like mine might have some small influence, but they don't. (laughs) And uh, people write to me, email, and uh, ask what they can do beyond what space advocates already do, and it really saddens me because I don't have an answer for them. I have to say I don't know what can be done. Wow. It's it's a very similar case that you put forward as a lot of ecologists and evolutionary biologists talk about when in, um, environmental scientists when they talk about how we have to protect the environment or we have to look for different ways of doing our industry and where people just don't want to look at long-term or sort of cataclysmic change for the worse. They just want to worry about what's happening in, in the moment, and it's oh, very well, hard. That, uh, that is true, uh, but a lot of the people who want to protect the environment don't realize uh, that the best way to do it is to use resources from space, and so I think a lot of their ideas are self-defeating uh, when they want to put money into other things uh, rather than into space, because there's no permanent way to protect the environment other than to move heavy industry into orbit and to use energy from space and materials from space. And uh, we can't can't preserve Earth forever unless we do that. And a lot of them are talking against space, which is just defeating their own purpose. You've said that some people argue against putting money into space. Um, is, are the arguments just that... Um, we need to spend more time on the environment of Earth or other things, or or are there other arguments as well against space well, exploration? Well, a, a lot of them uh, uh, just argue because they, they don't understand what space is for. Uh, and uh, some of them say, uh, well, we shouldn't put money into something that benefits only a few people uh, that are going to go to these other planets. Uh, uh, or just a few scientists, and that's not what it's for. It's it's to benefit everybody on Earth, not just those few people. And then some of them, a lot of the environmentalists, are just against uh, high technology in general because they somehow think we could turn back in time and preserve Earth just by having less technology. And that, I think, is an absolutely... Uh, backwards idea, and it can do a lot of harm because uh, we cannot, uh, if that ever happened, uh, we could not possibly support the population of Earth, let alone its future population. Uh, so the, the arguments are just based on misunderstanding, mostly. Uh, all these people mean well. Uh, they just don't realize uh, that we could have energy from space and we could use materials from space, and we could move a lot of the polluting industry uh, into orbit. And we we just don't do these things because people don't know they're possible. In The Far Side of Evil and Children of the Stars, um, the omnibus edition of your novels that was just released, you seem to have always uh, an arrangement of a few intellectuals or people that realize what they need to do and that they need to go to space or they need to work on certain scientific problems, but the public has different ideas about what they're doing. Do you think that that's the only way to really forward a plan like this? Well, I think that's the way it usually does happen. I mean, it would be great uh, if everybody understood these things. (laughs) Uh, Certainly in our own society, like our own society, uh, we 
we would like everybody to understand <laughs> these things and we make the information available. The situations in those novels are quite different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as far as this planet goes, I mean, it's true that only a few people understand these things, but it's not for lack of public information. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just that that's how life works. Uh, I think it has throughout history. There have always been uh, some people uh, that uh, understood more than the general public because the general public just doesn't bother. You are listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. This is the Living Writers Show. My name is Melanie, and today we are talking to Sylvia Engdahl, author of Enchantress from the Stars, The Far Side of Evil, Children of the Star, and Journey Between the Worlds, which was recently re-released. Um, <clears throat> you can check out more about Sylvia on the web at www.sylviaengdahl.com. That's S-Y-L-V-I-A-E-N-G-D-A-H-L. Um, and more about our show at Living Writers, sorry, our show Living Writers at wcbn.org slash livingwriters. We have all of our interviews posted and a schedule of upcoming interviews, lots of stuff to check out, and links, of course, to all of our authors. Um, for those of you who are not familiar with her works, Enchantress from the Stars was a Newbery Honor book. And um, it features the same heroine as The Far Side of Evil. Um, Children of the Star was originally a trilogy. Um, and Journey Between the Worlds is a romance about a girl who does not want to go to Mars. So it's perhaps for the non-science fiction fan as opposed to the science fiction fan or as well. Um, please do check out her books. They are amazing. And coming up in just a second is the rest of the interview. So stay tuned for that here on WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Also, in about a half an hour, we'll be hearing free speech radio news.
back to your writing experience, what other authors influenced you? And have you ever been told that you were an influence on another writer? Well, I think every author is influenced by reading in a general sense. Uh, it would not be possible to learn to write well without being influenced by a lot of good writing by other authors. But I don't think I've been influenced by any specific author in particular. And a lot of adults have told me they were influenced by reading my books when they were in their teens. And I think several of them were people who later uh, did become writers. But I don't know how specific that that influence was. I don't know of anybody who's written stories similar to mine. I think they were just inspired because they enjoyed the stories and uh, were interested in the ideas in the stories. Um, how did the re-release of your novels come about after they spent so long out of print and just available in the library? Well, there were two things. Uh, in the first place, the Internet has really changed the way books are distributed, and it's made it possible for small presses to publish books that don't have the really large audiences that uh, are needed today to distribute them through chain stores. And so that's how my trilogy got republished by Misha Merlin, which is a small press. Um, they don't try to get it into stores, but it's it sold uh, by the online booksellers and a few specialty sellers. And that just uh, wasn't possible before the Internet. Uh, and then the other thing uh, was that the Harry Potter books had a tremendous success, and that led bookstores to carry young adult fantasy and science fiction, which they didn't used to do. Uh, when my books first came out, the original editions were sold almost entirely to libraries. The publishers didn't even expect to get them into stores. Uh, but when uh, bookstores started making a lot of money on Harry Potter, uh, suddenly they decided to carry other young adult science fiction and, fi and fantasy fiction. And so that was how Enchantress from the Stars uh, got republished. The publishers uh, began to realize that there's a market for this beyond the library market. Uh, so the situation has really changed a lot. Um, you did a little bit of rev revision, excuse me, um, to the works. What changes did you make? Well, in Enchantress from the Stars, I didn't change at all, except for a few minor corrections. But in The Far Side of Evil and Journey Between Worlds, I did quite a lot of updating, and it's important. Uh, none of it changes the action of the stories in any way, but it has a big impact on how convincing those books are due to the readers of today. And unfortunately, the publishers didn't advertise the fact that the books were revised. And so most libraries uh, didn't realize that the old and the new editions aren't the same. And... I think that's uh, really unfortunate. Some of them still have old copies, and some of them didn't replace old copies that had worn out because they assumed that the books uh, uh, weren't so relevant. And uh, that I'm kind of unhappy about. Uh, I wish they knew that they were updated editions. Uh, the Far Side of Evil uh, was written back in the Apollo era, and Everybody expected then that once a civilization got into space, it would keep right on uh, making a progress in space and devoting a large effort to it. And so it, it presented my theory that getting into space and destroying the world are mutually exclusive alternatives. And I still believe that, but when people read that old edition, they naturally say, well, hey, we're in space and we're still in danger of destroying the planet. And so in the new edition, I've made it plainer that I didn't mean just flying around an orbit. <laughs> I mean, that's not enough. <laughs> you have to put a lot of energy into it and go ahead and establish settlements on other worlds. Uh, it doesn't uh, do enough good uh, just to orbit the Earth once in a while. <laughs> that's not what I meant by uh, getting into space. And then in Journey Between Worlds, it was a different situation. I didn't change any of what I had said about space and Journey Between Worlds. Uh, I didn't change the descriptions of the spaceship or anything like that. All of that was written back in the late 60s. Uh, and uh, 
there was really no reason to, to change what I had imagined. But the thing that I did change was that a lot of the wording in the original edition seems sexist today, and it reflected uh, what are now old-fashioned attitudes about women's roles. And so I changed a lot of that wording. And I also changed wording to take computers into account, because it would seem very strange to today's readers the way the characters didn't have computers. <laughs> and when they all the reading that they did, they did on microfilm and uh, things like that, which would... A teenager today just wouldn't understand at all. Uh, so those things have all been updated. I actually read a, a new novel, and I interviewed the author recently, where the kids go and look up old newspapers on microfilm, and they're pretty. They're from the 60s, so it might still have been on microfilm. And I remember using that in elementary school, but it seemed very anachronistic to me to have those, you know, have 14-year-old boys go to the library and use a microfiche. Well, yes, it, uh, uh, it really would. And I think uh, young people today that, that aren't really familiar uh, with what life was like in the 60s and the 70s, uh, just uh, even if they don't think about it, the book just doesn't convince them. Mm -hmm. And so that's why I think the updating is important. And I think a lot of people... Uh, don't even know that Journey Between Worlds has been republished. It just uh, was published in May of this year. And so even a lot of my readers who know about the other books don't realize that that uh, book is now uh, in an updated edition. Most of your books, as we've been talking about, defy genre and age categorization. And um, it seems like maybe your readership has suffered because of this. Maybe the publishers didn't know how to deal with your books. Do you feel the climate in publishing has changed at all, um, for better or worse? Well, not with respect to the genre categorization. Uh, a lot of people who would enjoy my books don't find them uh, because the readers who aren't science fiction fans... Uh, don't even pick up books that have a science fiction label. And yet, uh, you can't not have a science fiction label nowadays if a book is about another planet. That's just considered science fiction. Uh, and yet, my books don't appeal to the majority taste in science fiction because they want something a lot more exotic and further out than mine. And so, uh, it, it's a real problem. And uh, my readership does suffer because of it. Uh, when people who do find my books often say, oh, I never read science fiction, but I like yours. And uh, Journey Between Worlds, the new edition, uh, is really uh, getting a more of an audience, I think, because it has been reviewed at romance sites. It's mainly a romance. It's not like my other books. Uh, there's no fantasy in it. And nowadays there are a lot of websites that feature romance books, and I've had a lot of reviews there. So I'm hoping that uh, the girl, teenage girls who like romances uh, but don't usually read science fiction are going to find it. Uh, so the web has helped there. Uh, as far as the age goes, uh, my books tend to appeal to all ages, but... The publishers have advertised them as being for younger readers than they're meant for because that's where the market traditionally was. And I think that's improving because there are more YA books now. Uh, there's definitely more of a teen market than there used to be. And paperback lines uh, like Firebird are being marketed to both teens and adults. So I think there's some hope there. They used to put all my books in the children's room where they just weren't read, uh, except for Enchantress from the Stars. And now almost all libraries and many bookstores have teen sections. Yeah, at the local library here, Far Side of Evil and Beyond the Tomorrow Mountains are in the, they have a young adult teen section and a kid section, and they're in the kid section. I looked. It was a little bit disturbing because the far side of evil is not for little kids. So. No, it's not. And uh, the trouble is a lot of librarians didn't read it, and they say, oh, it's a sequel to Enchantress of the Stars. And that's another thing I've tried to get away from <laughs> uh, is having it called a sequel 
because it's a completely independent story, and it was a mistake, I now know, to use the same heroin, uh, but it should not be in the children's section, and if that's where it is in, in your library, I wish you'd tell a librarian. Oh, I've been agitating, don't worry. <laughs> but uh, well, anyway. uh, certainly... Uh, uh, beyond the Toronto Mountains doesn't belong in the children's section. Uh, the new edition of, uh, of the trilogy was published as adult science fiction. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, of course, the teens uh, like it. But the children are just bored to death by it. Um, do you have any advice for young writers? Well, I hear from a lot of young writers and, uh, and teenagers who want to be writers. And they have the idea that they can start right out and earn a living by writing when they finish college. Uh, I get them uh, from kids who have a school assignment to research careers. They don't realize that writing isn't like that. Uh, It's a very small percentage of writers support themselves by writing. I never did, and I never expected to. Uh, No matter how good you are at writing, you need to prepare for a regular job. You can't earn a living from fiction unless you become famous or have a lot of books that are in print. Uh, so that that's the main thing that I tell them. Um, they uh, just need to uh, write because they enjoy writing. That That's what you do when you start to write. <laughs> Your mother was also an author, and she was actively writing and publishing young adult novels at the same time you were. What was it like having two authors in the same household, and did you influence each other at all? Well, uh, we didn't really at all. Uh, she started a little before I did, and I guess I was influenced by the fact that she was able to get her work published. I thought, <laughs> well, if she can do it, maybe I can, too. Mm. Um, as, but she wrote about historical things, so that uh, uh, if we ever spoke to groups together, we featured the fact that she wrote about the past and I wrote about the future. But unfortunately, just when I got started publishing, the market for historical books for young people dried up, and my mother was told that kids aren't interested in history anymore. And her last works were rejected, even one that she already had a contract for. And uh, I've been sad about that because interest in history has arrived, revived somewhat since then, but it was too late to be of any help to her. What is your reader response like, and how has it changed over the years? And have Internet communications been important in those changes? Uh, Yes, the Internet has made just a tremendous difference. Uh, Back before the Internet, I had very little contact with readers. I only got a few scattered letters over all those years. Uh, Most teens are pretty shy about writing to authors in care of publishers, and the publishers... uh, don't forward them very fast, and it just isn't a very good way to communicate. But when I opened my website back in 1997, I was just amazed to find out how many people remembered my books. Uh, I heard from a lot of adults uh, who had read my books when they were younger, and some of these people were surprised to find out that I wasn't dead. Uh, But uh, since then, I've I've had a lot of email and uh, some from teens uh, as well as adults, and I'm always happy to get email, and I always answer my email personally. So I hope the listeners will visit my website and that they'll write to me. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, and um, I hope all of our listeners will check out your work. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me.
You are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor 88.3. This is Living Writers. My name is Melanie Schriederon, and today we were talking to Sylvia Engdahl. She is the author of the Newbery Honor book, Enchantress from the Stars, also The Far Side of Evil, um, in a new edition last year, Children of the Star, which was originally a trilogy of three books that is now out from Misha Merlin in an omnibus edition, and um, Journey Between the Worlds, just re-released from Putnam, um, in a new updated edition. So you can check those books out. You can go to her website, www.sylviaengdahl.com. That's S-Y-L-V-I-A-E-N-G-D-A-H-L to learn more about her ideas and her books. And I definitely encourage you to do so. So coming up next week on Living Writers, we have, as always, a very special show that you should tune into. Um, we will be talking to E. Lockhart. She is the author of a number of young adult novels, including The Boyfriend List and Fly on the Wall. Her new book is a sequel to The Boyfriend List. It's called The Boy Book, and it comes out on September 26th um, from the E. Lockhart website. It's the sequel to The Boyfriend List, and in it, Ruby Oliver confronts the secret about Noel, mysterious notes from Jackson, the interpretation of Boy Speak, the villainy of Cricket, the horrors of the school retreat, and the exploitation of Hooters Everywhere. There are fruit roll-ups, there are, there, excuse me, there is upper regioning, there are so many boys to choose from, and there are penguins. So you should definitely check out that book when it comes out, and for a little sneak peek at the author, tune in to Living Writers next week. Our website is wcbn.org slash livingwriters. All of our authors are featured there, and we have all of our um, interviews up in MP3 format. So if you want to check out more about Elock Hart, that's www.theboyfriendlist.com. And again, Sylvia Engdahl is www.sylviaengdahl.com, S-Y-L-V-I-A-E-N-G-D-A-H-L. Thank you so much for listening to Living Writers. Tune in next week for Elock Hart.
A kind caller just reminded me that I probably should not pull an NPR and not tell you what music I've been playing. So this is Jose Gonzalez. It's called Instrumental. It's from the Stay in the Shade EP. Um, Before this, the music you heard was Library Chat, a piece by Michael Andrews from the movie Me and You and Everyone We Know. Um, That's something I've been playing on Living Writers quite a bit. Helium with 13 Bs, Rory's Waltz by John Zorn, and some music by Broadcast were all featured in this episode of the Living Writers. You should check everything out that we put on the air. We just only do it because we love it. There are many common myths about homelessness. You know all those homeless people are just lazy. In reality, 40 to 70% of people without homes work. Their income is just too low for them to pay rent or to buy meals or to pay for health care. Giving aid to homeless people encourages them to live on the street. This is a myth filled with blame directed towards homeless people. Most homeless people are not in their situation by choice. They have been forced into their current position by illness, addiction, domestic violence, chance, or poverty. But I'll never be homeless. Homeless people are not always to blame for their situation. For many people, a well-timed combination of a job loss and an illness could create a very bad situation. People don't plan on becoming mentally ill. Maybe your insurance coverage won't be what you hope it would be. You might be at a vulnerable time with your expenses. The fact is, life deals each of us many unexpected blows. For aid, information, to volunteer or donate money, visit the Shelter Association of Washtenaw County on the web at www.annarborshelter.org or call at area code 734-662-2829. I didn't write no song about a cow, but now what about a cow that you could possibly like? Well, there steaks, there is milk. Why not write about a cow? No one is written about it. Why not write about a cow? Rufus Thomas wrote one of the all-time great songs about food, the funky chicken. In his memory, we present to you Pandora's Lunchbox. It's a food satire show, sometimes intentionally. We'll play songs about food, but we'll also talk to real restaurant owners and look at food in culture. And if we're ever boring, you get your money back. It doesn't cost a thing to tune into Pandora's Lunchbox on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Pandora's Lunchbox every Thursday evening at 6.30. The statement not evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Everybody gets a sandwich sometime and a piece of cake and ice cream if they're nice. This is Free Speech Radio News for Wednesday, August 30th, 2006. Filling in for Aldo Fagato, I'm Dante Toza in Philadelphia. In Iraq, 60 people were killed as Iraqi government forces tried to suppress movements that oppose continued U.S. military occupation. 70,000 people have been blocking major highways for the past four days between Balochistan and Pakistan in protest of the killing of the Palestinian leader Nawab Akbar Bukhti. But first, these news headlines. I'm Aaron Glantz with the headlines for Free Speech Radio News. U.N. Secretary General Kofi Annan continued his tour of Middle East hotspots today, meeting with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas in Ramallah before heading off to neighboring Jordan. Over 200 Palestinians have been killed 
since the end of June. This must stop immediately. Speaking alongside Abbas in Ramallah, Annan urged an end to the Israeli assault on the occupied West Bank and Gaza. He also urged Israel to end a blockade of Gaza that's been in effect since an Israeli soldier was kidnapped by Hamas in June. The closure of Gaza must be lifted. The crossing points must be opened, not just to allow Gusin, but to allow Palestinian exports out as well. The Israeli government refused to lift the blockade on Gaza, however, and continued its daily parade of military attacks. Menar Jabrin reports from the West Bank. In its ongoing military operation in Al-Shija'iyah, east of the Gaza Strip, the Israeli army killed five residents today in the morning after firing rounds of live ammunition randomly at the residents' homes. A sixth resident was shot and killed by the Israeli army deployed nearby the city of Beit Lahia, north of the Gaza Strip. Today's killings bring the death toll in the Gaza Strip to 17 since last Saturday. A resistance fighter of Islamic Jihad's armed wing of Al-Quds Brigade, Hussam Jaradat, died today of serious wounds he sustained earlier last week in an assassination attempt carried out by a special unit of the Israeli army in the West Bank city of Jenin. Jaradat was on the Israeli army list of wanted Palestinians. He managed to escape five assassination attempts earlier. For FSRN from IMMC.org in Palestine, I am Manar Jibrin. Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez is in Syria today, pledging solidarity with the government there amidst increased tensions between 